the Triathlon Show 321. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of That Triathlon Show, the podcast presented by scientifictriathlon.com. I'm your host, Michael, and on today's episode, I interview Associate Professor Max Paquette of the University of Memphis. We start by discussing running training load and going beyond just mileage as a measure of load, and that's something that Max and co-authors have written an article about that I'll link to in the show notes as well. But we also discuss other topics related to, for example, running biomechanics and injury risk, ground surfaces, and so on. So there's plenty of interesting topics that we go into. But before that, big thanks to our sponsors. First, we have Precision Fuel and Hydration that have a range of tools and products to help you personalize your fueling and hydration strategy so that you can perform at your best. Previously known as Precision Hydration, they have changed their name to reflect the fact that they're working both in hydration and in nutrition with tools and products in both categories. Everyone sweats differently with regard to sweat rate and sweat sodium concentration and need individualized hydration strategies and also fueling strategies because they will depend on factors like the duration and intensity of your activity. To figure out the best approach for you, head to precisionfuelandhydration.com and use their free online sweat test and their quick carb calculator to understand your fluid, electrolyte and carbohydrate needs during training and racing. Then you can book a free one-to-one video consultation consultation with the team to refine your hydration and nutrition strategy as a listener of the show you can get 15 percent off your first order of fueling and hydration products by using the code tts22 at checkout at precisionfuelandhydration.com and thank you to senate the senate indoor swim trainer is a one-of-a-kind swim bench that helps you improve your technique through an early catch maximize your propulsion for a more powerful powerful stroke and stay consistent by doing swim workouts at home even when you can't go to the pool it is now available in the uk eu and the us with free shipping in both the uk and the us it is very affordable similar to a pair of running shoes and best of all the investment is risk-free because if you are not in love with the senate trainer after two weeks of using it and using their free training program then you can send it back and get a full refund Learn more and get a 20% discount on your swim trainer on zenaiswimtrainer.com forward slash TTS. Now, without any further ado, let's get into the interview with Dr. Max Paquette. Welcome to that Triathlon Show, Max. How are you doing? Yeah, doing well. Thanks for having me, Michael. Uh, it's a great pleasure. Uh, you have done some tremendous uh, research in uh, in the field of uh, of running, in particular running biomechanics. So we'll get into several of the the studies that you've uh, that you've conducted and so on. But before we do that, can you tell us a bit more about yourself and your background? Yeah, of course. So yeah, Max Paquette. I'm a, I'm an associate professor in the United States, the University of Memphis. Um, I'm originally from uh, from Canada, small small town in eastern Ontario. Uh, I kind of got into running uh, in, in later in high school and uh, sort of fell in love with running. And then through university with the science uh, degree that I was pursuing, I kind of knew I was going to merge both uh, both sort of passions, if you will, running and science. And then um, did a doctoral degree and then into a faculty position in Memphis. And I've been doing running science research since, and so it's worked out pretty well. And um, really uh you know really love to kind of talk about it and share some of the some of the findings that that we've observed over the years 
Yeah. And are you still running yourself? Yeah, I, um, I'm on the, uh, my training program is probably, um, not, uh, not, uh, not optimal or ideal, probably risky. In fact, uh, I'm probably on a, um, run when you feel like it program. Um, and then sometimes I get coerced into, uh, doing crazy things like I'm pacing a marathon this weekend. Um, so we'll see how that goes, but I, I stick with it. I run enough that I can I can maintain some level of fitness that I can sort of you know build from there when I want to. But it's not it's not the best approach. It's not something I would recommend. Right. Well, uh, let's first get into the topic of training load. And uh, for the listeners, I will link in the show notes to uh, a study called "Moving Beyond Weekly Distance: Optimizing Quantification of Training Load in Runners." So. Can you first just give a, a broad overview of what led you to 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 conduct this or to to write this uh, this review? Yeah, yeah, it, it's uh, this. So it's a commentary uh, in a way, we or a narrative review, if you will. We um, we myself and Trent Stellingworth, who's Canadian, and Chris Napier, who's Canadian, and Rich Willie, who's a physio in, in here in the U.S. in Montana. No, we had been talking about sharing our, our thoughts and some of the evidence currently available on quantifying training in runners uh, simply because over, the, I mean, forever, as you know, and as your listeners know, running training is typically quantified using mileage or kilometers distance in a way. So, you know, we thought it would be worth spending some time writing a paper to, to discuss other options and why other options might be better. Um, Really, it, the goal was really education and, and not necessarily telling people what to do, but giving people an idea or ideas of other ways to think about training monitoring. Not necessarily saying this is the only way to do it, but here are other options that it might be worth. And of course, the title implies moving beyond uh, weekly mileage um, or distance that we just wanted people to think a bit differently about it. And so not be stuck in the way of just measuring distance, but also thinking about other factors that are involved. And this is particularly important triathletes, of course, given the three disciplines. Yeah. So so here's a two-part question then. First, what are the potential issues with monitoring training load based on distance alone or mileage alone? And secondly, what are some some of the other alternatives that you discuss and propose? Well, well, you know, it's like it's like anything anything we measure right like there there sometimes you want to <clears throat> we want to keep it simple and so you know not before i talk about the issues the reason why people do it is mostly because it's simple right we can measure we take a gps watch and you just you know you figure out there's mile 1 mile 2 mile 3 so on and so forth the issue the primary issue with with using that that approach is that if a coach is training a number of athletes of different levels and not necessarily different categories of, of caliber of, of runner, for example, but even within a national level or regional level or international level, there will be some sort of differences or some differences in terms of, you know, paces and abilities and, you know, daily um, exertion uh, levels for different athletes. And so by assuming that if someone, if, 10 athletes run 10 miles together that the stimulus on those 10 miles is the same is a bit, is a bit of a mistake in our opinion. In that of course, some people 10 miles might be um, 
you know, they might complete 10 miles at some slower pace. And so if you, if you run a, a 10 mile run at eight minute per mile pace, while you're spending more time on running and, you know, taking steps essentially, than someone who's running 10 miles at seven minute per mile pace. Um, of course, the pace is different, but it's always relative. Um, so that's, I would say the primary, you know, issue with distance and, you know, even to some extent duration is that you're, you're not really accounting for individual responses to the training. Um, and that's when the measurement of effort and sort of physiological load comes into play. So, you know, RPE, rate of perceived exertion or heart rate or, you know, other measures that people might be able to, to, to take into account. Yeah. Um, yeah. Better alternatives, I guess, I suppose I just touched on that a little bit, but, you know, ultimately I will say this is not the answer that people want because it's not clear cut, but I would say that there's no, there's no magic bullet or there's no magic recipe to say, use this method and it will be, it will be foolproof, right? That doesn't, that doesn't exist. It doesn't exist in anything. So what we're trying to achieve is, is give people a different way of thinking about training so that they can implement ways to monitor their athletes outside of what's been done, right? Um, just to consider different factors. And if we can achieve that, I think, you know, it'll, it'll help quite a bit with, um, you know, helping coaches and athletes, you know, improve and get better. So, so what is the different way of thinking that you're alluding to there? Right. So again, like if anytime in any profession or discipline or, or, you know, job or sport, if all you think about is, is one variable or one factor, obviously the human body is a complex system. And so if you think about one variable all the time, you're, you're going to miss, you're going to miss a lot of, um, of other things that are contributing to the outcome of the training, right? So this is an example of you, you, you make 20 people, 20 athletes complete, you know, X amount of miles per week for X amount of weeks. Over time, some will do well, some will do not so well. Some of them will regress. Some of them will improve. Some of them will get injured. Some of them will stay healthy. Um, and a coach might wonder, well, I, how come you, how come this person got injured or this person did well? I don't know. I don't understand. They all did the same thing. Well, that's exactly the issue, right? They all did the same thing, and it was measured the same way. Um, so considering factors outside of just running, for example, like in triathlon, it's it's probably the, it's probably more easier to grasp because if I'm monitoring running training on a triathlete. I have to consider cycling training and, and, and swimming training. And of course, all these will affect the outcome of the running training. Um, in student athletes, high school or collegiate athletes, or, uh, you know, you're going to see some issues where there's academic stress that plays into there's relationship stress. There's for professional athletes, maybe financial stress or relationship stress, all these different things that of course you can't measure with one variable. So thinking outside the box and, you know, being, being quite, um, open, not, not necessarily open, but communicative with athletes and understanding what's going on. I read a, uh, I read a, a tweet from a sort of legendary coach, uh, Vern Gambetta the other day. And he said, basically, uh, you know, along the lines of, you know, elite sports is all about pushing boundaries. And, and so, you know, the best way to, the, the, the best way to, to sort of, you know, manage athletes is to manage risks 
right? We're not, we're not predicting anything. We're not preventing anything, but we can manage risks. And so by thinking outside of just distance, you can understand other factors that might be involved in, in you know, performance improvements or injury risks, and we can some, somewhat manage those. We can't predict if it's going to get hurt or, or, get, or improve or, or get worse, but we can at least manage, you know, those risks. It's a bit, it's a bit like gambling, but, you know, gambling very safely in a way. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. So the, the, um, the, the whole point is to take into account uh, a multi, multitude of factors. Like you can look at distance for one, but you can look at RPE and how it changes week to week in different types of workouts. You can look at heart rate. Uh, you you can look at um, look look at the maybe even things like heart rate variability or things in the morning and and uh, uh, basically taking a broader view of 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 it than than just looking at one variable that that's just right and exactly and those the 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 factors you just mentioned are all are all things that are nowadays easily measured but not for everyone right some people don't have access or even know what those things are. So you mentioned heart rate variability, you know, heart rate, RPE. Um, but there's also simple things like, you know, noticing an athlete's demeanor, right? Their expression, um, how they move, right? Most coaches that are in tune with their athletes know what an athlete looks like when they're feeling good and know what they look like when they don't feel good. And so you don't need to probe, at, you know, with too many questions and try to get into their personal lives, but you can you get a good gauge on right, something's not right today. You know, we can adjust certain things and we can manipulate certain factors in, in training and um, increase recovery time. So it's not just about technology. I want to point that out. It's not just about technology and, and numbers, but it's also about paying attention and, and communicating and, and observing what's going on. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I, I saw a tweet today, I actually retweeted that, and which was a, a graphic kind of going, uh, talking about the point that data is not just numbers data is the the behavior that an, an athlete is expressing the uh, what they're saying what they're writing in comments and so on like all of that is data right. and that is a common misconception that you have to have as you said one simple number or one single number and and i want to come back to one thing you said about triathlon and how it's so important to for triathletes to to manage this with three different sports we have tried to do this with training stress score and, and i mean some companies and people in particular are pushing the training stress score thing very like a lot that you can kind of look at your swimming and cycling and running combined and, and i've for quite a long time been quite neutral neutrally opposed to it almost because i think it's just so <laughs> um so difficult and, and you, you can't really compare between the different different disciplines because they are different factors it's not just if, if we're talking about just the metabolic load and maybe maybe it's more relevant but but even how you measure it with power when it comes to cycling pace when it comes to running pace when it comes to swimming with or without equipment it it, it all becomes almost yeah. invalid with all of those confounding factors and different measurement techniques so, so you can't really make a composite metric uh in in that way with just training stress score and, and i think it speaks to what your original original point that we're trying to make things right. simple that aren't necessarily simple this is a great example, Michael, in that, you know, you, people are searching for the one, the one score, the one number, the one value, the one threshold that will tell them what to do, right? But as you just alluded to with cycling, you know, you know, wattage or, you know, power meters and, and swimming and, you know, swimming's, <clears throat> swimming's so different than running and running is different than cycling. But, but 
I think ultimately a good coach will have a way to juggle all of these, all of the three disciplines and be able to understand that, you know, there was a, there was a hard swimming session that the morning, and then there was a hard running session in the afternoon. And they're able to sort of, you know, piece it together without necessarily seeing, you know, specific numbers. Um, And as long as a coach or an athlete has some method to quantify their training that is consistent over time and, and more importantly, potentially reliable. So they can do this. They can, they can rate it or gauge it reliably. That's really what we're after, right? It's sort of day-to-day changes and week-to-week changes and month-to-month, not necessarily uh, for an individual athlete. It's, you don't care about comparing to your teammate or, or your, your training partner. It's more so about yourself. And so, you know, you're, you're right in that it's difficult to do it at all in one, but good athletes and coaches have ways to monitor their training and their responses to it, um, you know, in a way that makes sense for them. Yeah, no, exactly. And um, yeah, well, well, one one example of that would be uh, actually an, an experiment that I'm just starting with myself as an athlete and I haven't rolled it out to my athletes yet because I, I'm not sure it will work, but there is an app where you can, you can measure quite accurately or hopefully very accurately uh, a counter movement jump or even a reactive strength index uh, test and just measuring that on a weekly basis to uh, to monitor the neuromuscular status of the of the body is something that mm-hmm. i'm attempting to do and when you combine that with measuring for example heart rate variability for the autonomic system status and and then uh, just general rpe and, and things like that then looking at all, at all of that forms a, a kind of a a complete holistic picture uh, when 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 you have all of those different things, but then you still have to take a decision, as you say, risk management, and and uh, and there's no formula for inputting all of that. Exactly. And there's two things. One, yes, there are a lot of there are a lot of tests and measurements we can we can conduct or take to monitor, you know, whether it's fatigue or training response or what have you. Um, it's really easy to get caught up in the weeds and measuring a bunch of things and trying to combine them and, and understand what they mean. Um, I, I really, I really recommend people that they, and this is probably the hardest thing, honestly, beyond tech is, is, is coaches and athletes need to really dedicate some time to, to focus on, uh, especially for athletes or coaches to, to, to explain this to athletes and athletes making a conscious effort to, to learn this is how they feel, how like knowing their body and the response and the signs that come with it. It's very difficult for tech to measure all these, these signs. Some people might be, um, when I'm really tired, coffee doesn't keep me awake, for example, or when I'm really tired, um, you know, I drop things when I walk around or, you know, I, I, I trip on stuff or, you know, um, just there's a couple of you know there's a number of factors that can, that can pop up with fatigue and and overtraining for example um, and so I think education is the key there is really trying to, for athletes and coaches to understand the athlete and themselves um, and come up with their own solutions you know data is useful and tech's useful but also you've got to listen and understand your body um, as much as possible and then. Um, so that's, you know, the, the main thing is there's a lot of technology that's available and we can measure all things. And the last thing you mentioned is sometimes we don't quite know how to manage risk. And that's the, so that's the age old question about technology is the, the implementation of the results, right? What do we, how do we affect change? You get X numbers on a test or a measurement 
what's the next move? Do you, do you just take a day off? Do you back off the training session? Do you make it harder, right? We don't have these answers quite yet, um, especially, especially from an injury risk reduction standpoint. Um, from a performance standpoint, you know, I, I think we're, we're a little further ahead, but from an injury risk standpoint, we don't really know. Um, and so that's the, that's the big question mark is what do we do with these data um, in terms of, uh, you know, decision-making uh, in the short or long-term? Yeah. Yeah. Well, it, it comes down to, in the end, still to intuition almost, or well, in, intuition combined with all of the data, you, well, intuition based on all of the data you can collect in conjunction with each other, including, for example, subjective feedback, as you mentioned. And, and I do think yeah. as a coach that the, the subjective feedback from an athlete that is in tune with their body, that is the, the most important piece of data that you, oh, that you can get. Yeah, yeah, you're right. It goes back to risk management. That's what it comes down to. You you might not be certain, but if you have doubts, you know, it's it's it's, it's hard, especially at, at the elite level or even, even at the sub-elite level and national, regional level, you know, Athletes want to get better. They want to improve their personal bests. They want to be faster. They want to finish higher in the placings. Um, and so, you know, saying, oh, you know, you're really tired, you know, we'll, we'll just, we'll just, we'll just back off the session. You know, sometimes that's good, but also sometimes, you know, it's a fine line between backing off too much and, 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 uh, and, and pushing through too much. Right. So, Again, risk management is, I think, the key term and for performance uh, or overtraining or, or injury risks. Um, personally, I'll give you my personal opinion on that is I think, I think I always like to err on the side of caution. I, I, right now I mostly coach junior athletes, so high school level, so grade nine to so like 14 to 18 year old uh, runners. And so for me, it's a no brainer in that case. Like it's always, you know, when in doubt, just pull back, you know, do less. Now at the professional or higher level, you know, sometimes, you know, you do take that risk. You do push it, you know, even if it's maybe there's some things that are telling you, ah, that's not quite, maybe we should be careful. It's like, well, you know, one more week or something, you know, like you're always pushing boundaries. Um, so it just depends on the athlete you're coaching as well. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, well, one thing regarding injury risk, uh, one, one, one thing that you have worked on a lot and uh, and there have been tweets and presentations uh, floating around as well is around the neuromuscular load of running and some calculations around that. I think Trent Stellingworth had a presentation or maybe you maybe it was your presentation. I can't even yeah. remember, but some calculations so around that. But but in sort of simple terms, can you, can you explain a little bit around the neuromuscular load of, of running and the moderating factors uh, that, yeah. that impact neuromuscular load? Yeah, that's certainly a, a term that that Trent has used quite a bit in the past, and we use it uh, as an example in the in the in, in the uh, in the commentary. Um, you know, one way that you know you can kind of summarize it is, it, I mean, there's not really. It's a bit of a broad term to encompass a number of things, right? So, a simple way to me, it falls into sort of mechanical loading uh, on the body in a way because. Any mechanical force, any any mechanical stress that's applied to the body, is going to be sort of um, the response will be some kind of neuromuscular, you know, input from the from the human from the body. And so, you know, we talk about contact time, for example, and um, you know, number of steps and versus you know, so number of steps, contact time, and so 
time under tension, then you can you can kind of measure if you take a thousand steps and each step takes 150 milliseconds, you can figure out, you know, that, that you're taking um, X amount of or you're spending X amount of you know seconds under tension. And so um, that's that's one way to think of it is, you know, demands on the body, essentially, in a broad term. Right. Yeah. Um, and as opposed to mileage, where people use mileage as, you know, demand on the body. Again, if you think of it this way, like if you and I go for a run and, and I spend 230 milliseconds on the ground and you spend 200 milliseconds on the ground every step you take. Um, if we take if we both take a thousand steps, obviously, I'm going to spend more time under tension. I'm going to spend more time, you know, where I have to produce muscular output or there's mechanical stresses being applied to my body and so on and so forth. So that's the concept anyway. It's just to, to, to compare between athletes and even within athletes. Um, you know, if we're fatigued, we may spend more time on the ground, for example, because, you know, we're not as bouncy or uh, our, our, lo- our lo- lower limbs aren't as stiff and, and being able to sort of rebound quickly. So these factors would kind of all fall under neuromuscular load, um, if you will. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and when so you you explained how how you get to the kind of time under tension metric and then from there one one thing that can be important to to think about as well is how your every time you you hit the ground you you experience a force that is a basically a multiple of your of your body weight so you can you can calculate the total force or total load uh, in that way as well and and that that was something when i saw that first which was now probably at the beginning of this year uh is, is when i started thinking about this a little bit more but just thinking about how body weight without placing any judgment of course on it but how it impacts your the sustainable mileage and why it makes sense that a 60 kilogram kenyan runner can can run a lot of course there's a lot more to it they have grown up running and built up to it over years but maybe but why it like even if there was if even if it was metabolically possible for a triathlete to run like a runner the build of triathletes is also often quite difficult a bit more muscular a bit uh quite quite often bigger in general uh meaning carrying more weight and and then the the load in terms of a, a newton or kilogram perspective being being that much higher so so it can come with an increased injury risk uh there as well from from that perspective so i think that as as coaches that's an interesting perspective to look at when when looking at why well when, when keeping when looking at how to keep athletes injury free actually body weight is is one variable that can be quite important there because uh, a multiple of body weight is exerted on the body in every single step yeah I, i'd be careful with that uh, of course because because it is it's not you know we're, we're often reporting this as as relative to body weight not not in absolute you know force units like newtons for example um it's relative to your body so if you if i run with you know three times my body weight and you run with three times your body weight and we weigh different you know or we have different masses um that body weight is different for both of us but it's relative to us right mm. and so um yeah i just i would just be careful about you know mass and injuries because as you as you alluded to briefly um, if training is done well and progressed over time, you, you, you adapt, you know, basically the muscular tendinous uh, tissues adapt and, and skeletal tissue adapts to that, to that load that you're, that you're dealing with every step. Um, 
which is one of the reasons why we we take time building up. Um, the other thing I would mention too is, you know, the composition of that mass is quite important. Um, an elite triathlete, you know, which is who is obviously um, has a high percent of lean mass or muscle mass, um, is carrying f- very functional weight. So the weight is quite useful. Uh, you know, especially, you know, if they're, if they're a better cyclist um, than other di- disciplines, they're going to have fairly muscular legs, uh, obviously, for, for cycling. And so, you know, one thing we don't know is how much, um, you know, more muscle mass might be protective against, uh, you know, musculoskeletal injuries. Because, yes, there's more mass, but also there's some of that mass is actually doing work to uh to help sort of uh absorb energy and generate energy so you know we got we have to be careful around mass as you mentioned as well but um i would say that generally speaking masses masses is, is rarely a factor um in in terms of uh in terms of injuries across the board right across all populations of runners um that might be the case in beginner runners where where you know people are actually starting out running to lose weight for example that's a whole different story though yeah right? like well, in terms of performance that's a different story completely but uh we yeah we just have to be careful with with body mass and injuries and how it's perceived and, and how we talk about it mm, very interesting thank you for correcting me on on that yeah i, I didn't yeah, sure. wasn't, wasn't aware of the uh the fact that it's actually not a not really predictable injury uh but that's that's super uh super valuable to know um, a couple of other factors then in terms of the neuromuscular load. What about terrain and footwear? Uh, do do these factors have an impact? Yeah, yeah. De- I, mean, I, I mean, I say yeah, yeah, uh, in a non-scientific way here, mostly because the evidence, scientifically, evidence on this is not is not strong either way. Um, you know, in terms of in terms of footwear and injury risks, that's that's a that's a whole episode, obviously. Um, but uh, obviously, a hot debate. Um, the but again, there's no there's really no strong evidence that if you if a if a footwear specific footwear type is prescribed to a specific runner, it'll improve or reduce risks of injuries. Um, and so that's you know that's something that is a bit of a gray area in our field. Um, you know, there's concepts around comfort, you know, basically, you know, wear comfortable shoes and you'll reduce injury risks. But that sort of that bubble has bursted a bit because people buy comfortable shoes all the time and they still get injured. And and then the whole, you know, pronation control, you know, pronate, you know, control pronation with motion control shoes. And you know, that doesn't work either. We've, that's been shown as well. So um, the only the only thing uh, with regards to injuries and footwear that seems to be fairly well accepted. And I, I'm not going to say accepted across the board, but probably the, the most well accepted idea with footwear is um, basically uh, having or, or, or using a number of different types of footwear in training. So, you know, having having a high rotation of shoes. So, you know, you, you may alternate between a pair of shoe on Monday, Wednesday and Friday, another pair of shoe on Tuesday and Thursday and a different one on Saturday and Sunday kind of thing. That's a that that's a fairly well accepted idea. The evidence is not strong either, but it's there at least. Right? Mm. Whereas other concepts are just it's just not there. Um, is, there is there no evidence for cushioning the amount of, of of cushioning in the shoe? No, I mean not not in terms of like prospective, you know, uh, um, studies where 
if you randomize a number of people in, in high cushion or, or no cushion or barefoot or other types of shoe and you see what happens, like there's no strong evidence that any of those types of shoes will lead to lower risks or lower rates of injuries. Mm-hmm. Um, so we, so, you know, it's, again, it's not a fun finding cause it's confusing, but, um, I will say though, my, based on, on research and, and clinical practice, some colleagues and, and practitioners acutely in the short term, when a runner is dealing with an injury or rehabbing from an injury, there may be some strategies acutely that we can use to, uh, basically, you know, in, again, I, I can't say acutely enough, but in the short term, you know, shift loads a little bit away from maybe a damaged tissue or a symptomatic tissue um, to to help with with the uh, rehabilitation process. So again, I'm not saying that if you're injured, wear this type of shoe. Depending on the injury, you might be able to try to shift loads a bit away from that injured area to uh, to manage the symptoms while you're rehabbing. Uh, but aside from that. The footwear and running injury literature is, is fairly weak at the moment. Um, mm. With regards to terrain, or go ahead. Yeah, no, I was just going to uh, to ask about the terrain aspect. Yeah, with regards to terrain, uh, so recently uh, I spoke with Brad Beer on the Physical Performance Show uh, out of Australia, just just on that, uh, on, on surface interactions and, and with runners. Um, so that might be a good listen. Uh, it's about an hour or so uh, on just focusing on surfaces. <laughs> <laughs> but the summary here is that I'll, I'll make two points. So I would start by saying, just like in footwear, there's probably some value in, in, in altering, you know, surfaces you, that people run on, um, mostly to change up the, the mechanical stimulus uh, on, on various tissues, not just muscle tendons, but bones and, and you know, uh, just, just overall uh, shifting um, mechanical stresses around. And I'll, I'll mention sort of one sort of fairly big misconception um, around running surface is a lot of people, and I've heard this since I started running, you know, in the, in the late 90s, and people have always said that running on softer surfaces is, is, a, is a better surface in terms of injury risk, right? Um, there's not really any no really evidence on this, but what we know is that um, – when you run on a softer surface, of course, uh, what it does is it changes how you run. Specifically, your your lower limb stiffens, meaning that think of it as your lower limb as a spring. When you when you transition from a hard to a softer, a compliant surface, a, a surface that sort of um, compresses qu- quite easily, what like like sand or grass or or or, or soft dirt, um, what ends up happening is that your lower your lower limb spring becomes very stiff. So uh, when that happens, of course, you place a little more, um, you know, mechanical stress on, on, on your Achilles tendon, potentially, you know, up the chain to the patella tendon. And of course, muscles are not moving as much. The strain is less, but there's, it's a, it just, it just become everything becomes stiffer, right? Um, and, and whereas when you run on a hard surface, that's, that's, that's not the case. I mean, you still have some stiffness, but your, your, your body is more compliant, right? So, the point of this is that is if you maintain a running speed and you run on pavement and then you transition to running on the grass at the same speed, um, one thing that happens with soft surfaces is that the ground is not as as responsive, right? The ground doesn't push back on you as much. So to maintain the same speed as you as you ran on a hard surface, you have to, re- to basically generate more muscular work. And of course, when you do that, it increases, you know, the stresses on 
your musculotendinous tissues. So those that have Achilles injuries, uh, even muscular uh, strains, running on soft surfaces, especially if you try to maintain your running speed, might be detrimental. Now, if you slow down, that might not be as, as big a deal. But if you maintain your running speed, the demands of the musculoskeletal, the musculotendinous tissue is are higher. And so that might sort of exacerbate the problems there. For bone injuries, you know, it might be useful to go on soft surfaces. Again, if you slow down, because if you, because now the, the, the forces applying, applied to your body are less, which is good for bone. But at the same time, if you go fast, we know that when muscles pull on, on bones, they compress bones and those compressive forces contribute to the forces and the damage on the bone. So it's a bit of a, you got to be careful. So my recommendation is, yes, you can run on soft surfaces, but use it to slow yourself down. And I tell some athletes that I coach often, I, I often run on trails on, on easy days to force myself to go easy, even if I feel good, because it's harder to run fast on a soft surface on a trail. Um, I'm not talking about a technical, you know, trail with roots and hills. I'm talking about, you know, a soft, soft gravel or dirt or grass trail where you have to slow down um, and it forces yourself to slow down. If you maintain your pace on a soft surface, it might actually be detrimental to, to musculoskeletal tissue. Yeah, so that's I think, an important uh, take home with with terrain. Yeah, uh, I listened to that episode with with Brad, and definitely I'll link to that in the show notes as well. It's worth listening to for listeners that are interested in going I mean, deeper. I think one thing you, I think one thing you mentioned there as well was around the concept of soft surfaces and and trails. Actually, a lot of trails are quite hard packed dirt so so yeah. they're not actually that soft so yeah. it's almost only in our head that they are soft because it's not asphalt it's, it's but road. which is very true but they're also unpredictable and so i i'm not sure that the whole idea of like stiffening the lower limb on soft surfaces is only because of soft surfaces it's also because when you stiffen the lower limb you limit the possibility for joint motions and so mm -hmm. this happens if you run at night on a hard surface, this, you can't see the ground very well. You will also stiffen your lower limb. And so on trails, when you can't predict, you know, when sometimes you, you can't really tell, you know, if there's leaves on the ground or if there's, you know, you, the depth perception might be off a little bit. You might not be able to predict where your foot's going to land. So you'll stiffen though, uh, anyway, innately, even if the ground is packed. Right. Hmm. And I think also just the action of like turning and maybe jumping over a root or, you know, <laughs> The, the uneven ground of, of trail running contributes to this concept as well. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think uh, you gave some great practical uh, ideas there for how to incorporate it. And and I've, I've, yeah, I think that take-home message is great. And, and, and also just to remember that, or like just as uh, to add to that, there, there's, no, there, there's, there's no substitute for just generally building up your load in a good way conservative or appropriate manner like you, you can't you can't shortcut that by just starting to run on trails a bunch like you, you still run some risks even if they might be slightly different than if you run on uh, on hard yeah. surfaces right um and and then what about intensity uh so if you run fast versus running slow we talked about that now in the context of terrain but but in general terms if you stick to the road for example how, how does that impact things like injury risk, uh, load on the tendons, on the muscles, on the bones, et cetera? Yeah. So, I mean, pace and speed are obviously relative to the person. So, you know, 
fast for one person might be very slow for another person. So, you know, it, it, I think it's important that it's all relative to the person. Um, and so, you know, if you have a person who runs, you know, 12 minute per mile, you know, on, on, uh, that's their typical pace, which is, a, you know, for, for, for most, that's their, that's their running pace, you know. Um, and so that's obviously going to lead to very different um, mechanical stresses applied to the body than someone who's running 530 minute per mile pace. Um, and that's, that's just the reality of, of, of physics, right? I mean, so even though it is relative, like it also matters how fast you're going in absolute terms. Um, but there's some, there's some interesting research that, you know, shows obviously generally speaking on average speed at faster speeds, you can sort of increase mechanical load on the body. So specifically the forces, the vertical forces go up. So peak vertical force, um, it's loading rate or how quickly the force, you know, is loaded on the body. Um, and then demands sort of sort of plantar like calf demands on your calves sort of go up in within within not sprinting speeds but within you know normal running speeds um, and so on and so forth. So of course forces and mechanical stresses go up as you increase speed. That being said, um, it's very individual. So I've I've done some testing in, in elite distance runners and some runners. Um, at faster speeds, the forces actually go down, you know, at w w what we might call like an optimal, you know, pace for, for mechanical stress. And then it goes back up as they speed up. And then some runners, a small increase in speed, you know, really increases the force applied to the body. And while others increasing speed, you know, is, is a, is a shallow increase in force. And then finally others, you increase speed and nothing changes. They're pretty flat. Right. And so this comes in the, the reason for this is, some runners, as speed goes up, they, they adjust how they run. So, for example, if you watch uh, Kipchoge jog, and I'll say jog because, you know, for him it's slow running, but the way that he runs is very different than when he's running, you know, 433 per mile at, at his marathon pace. Um, you know, they're very, very different. You, you wouldn't even recognize the guy, right? And so same thing with everyone. So if you're running very, if you're running at a slower pace, you're likely running differently than if you're running at a faster pace, at a faster pace. And that, that I think is just innately how we adjust to running speed and, and the tasks that we're accomplishing to minimize the cost of, of, of locomotion, of moving. Um, and so speed is a tough one, which is why I think sometimes it is valuable to do some mechanical testing uh, or biomechanical testing at different speeds for different runners to understand what different paces mean for them mechanically. Um, now, physiologically, it's easier because you can measure heart rate or RPE or things like that. But mechanically, it's important to understand how going fast influences a runner, whereas uh, another runner might, might not respond the same way. And that allows a coach to understand even better the, the the training load for that specific runner, uh, you know, if they prescribe faster or, or faster workouts more often than not, kind of thing. So, it, it, I would I would encourage people to come up with a way to assess how how every athlete responds to changes in speed. I think there's quite a bit of value there. Mm. Are there any things we can say generally, for example, regarding? Um, elite runners, for example, would they would they benefit from running their easy runs at a slower relative intensity than slower runners to maybe 
limit the the absolute loading from those easy runs without necessarily giving up the metabolic adaptations that they will get from from that is can we say anything about that or uh yeah i mean i think in general i mean running easy is always good uh <laughs> running easy when you're supposed to and in recovery mode now the easy is relative of course like i try to get across this point across to to, to various runners that you know most runners even at the elite level so elite men and women, you know, probably run their easy runs somewhere in the 620 to 745 per mile pace, depending on, on average, right? Like they might run slower at times or faster at times, but on average, I would say in 620 to, you know, eight minute pace is probably realistic for most, most that, elite. That's about 415 to five per kilometer, I believe. Yeah, that sounds right. Yeah, that sounds right. Um I mean, you could do this very quickly. You hop on Strava and, and take a look at some of the best runners in the United States or around the world, and around the world, and you'll notice like some some of the easy run paces are a lot slower than you might imagine. Now, what people need to realize here is relative to their race paces, those are very slow paces, right? So, if you have you know a a, um, a female five k runner who runs fifteen minutes for five thousand meters, right? That's that's 448 per mile pace, right? Yep. That's a race pace. So if you're running at 745, that's three minutes slower relative to 448, right? So it's 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 a large chunk relative to the actual race pace. Now, if you take uh, an adult or high school runner who runs 19 minutes for 5K, right? So that's what uh, six six minute pace around there, uh, around around six minute per mile pace, roughly. I would guess. Um, mm-hmm. I'm not I'm not too too sure. I guess I could do the quick calculation, but you know you're looking at you're, you're looking at um, you know nearly two uh, over two minutes slower per mile is a race pace. Yet what you'll see is a lot of slow runners will still do their easy runs at like 7.30 to 8.30 pace. So they're only a minute and a half, you know, slower than their, than their, than their race pace. So basically as a percentage of their race pace, those easy run paces are much more intense for a non-elite runner. And so when that, when we say easy, you know, it's, it's always relative to what, what max, what a max pace is. So again, a 448, you know, versus 745 compared to a, a six minute versus 745, the, the six minute per, per mile 5k runner is, is, you know, operating at a much higher race intensity, um, than the, the elite runner. So I think it's, you know, and, 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 and sometimes pace is not a great indicator because, you know, even that pace is, will be easy for all for all of these athletes from a, let's say a percent of heart rate or percent of VO2 max or in terms of metabolic percentage. Um, but yet the, the it's still it's still closer to their race pace. So it's 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 tough to, to recommend a pace. And some people say run two minutes slower than your race than your 5k race pace. In high school runners that that's a pretty common thing I've heard is take two minutes off of your race pace. <laughs> That should be your easy run pace, and and I think it's a good starting point. Um, you you asked about the mechanical forces as well <clears throat> with that, and I think that again that really depends on the runner. Um, some runners, 
um, again, at, at a slower pace, they don't, they don't experience forces that are that different compared to their race pace, um, mm-hmm. which sounds crazy, but it's, it's, it's true. Um, I've seen this, I've seen this in, in runners and the individuality of their response to speed is important. So <clears throat> it's, um, it's definitely something that coaches and athletes need to think about. Um, now, depending on your philosophy on training, you know, some people don't like to run slow. Some people say I run fast all the time. And although that might work for some over the course of the last, you know, 20 years, I have to say I've, I've seen way more disasters with that approach than I have with the, you know, run e- actually run easy on your recovery days. Um, it's much more common for people that constantly run fast relatively um, to either burn out of the sport or get injured and, and not improve. Um, there's no doubt about that. You know, even though the science might not be there, no one's really, I think no one's really studied it because it's such a common sense concept. Does that yeah. make sense? Yeah. Yep. And uh, so you were getting at kind of what I was asking as well there that the relatively speaking slower runners tend to even when they run easy let's say metabolically heart rate RPE VO2 they they are the higher percentage of their race pace than the elite runner and and then my follow up question would then be uh, do you think that that is 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 that correct i mean correct is maybe a stronger word but but do you think that that is okay uh, or do you think that no they should be at the same percentage as the elite runners from their uh, race pace when when doing their easy runs yeah i mean I, I especially in a in a in younger athletes in younger athletes where they, their bodies are still developing i i think focusing on the mechanical aspect of training is probably more important um you know young athletes heart rates you know they recover so fast it's not as big of an issue. I think the bigger issue that will that will that will send their running career into a spiral are are, are high risk injuries like bone stress injuries and and things like that. So I think if if you know to summarize it all, I, a junior coach should really focus on the mechanical aspect of of training more so than the metabolic aspect of training, especially in those who are at a higher risk of um, skeletal injuries. Um, and so, yes, in that case, if they're running at a much higher percentage um, of their of their race space, then the mechanical loads on their body will be higher, relatively speaking, than an elite runner. Mm. Um, now, that's a that's a generalized that's a very general statement because again, some runners at slower paces, you know, aren't very mechanically efficient. They still experience quite a bit of force. And vice versa, but in general, on average, I think that a higher percent of race pace will mean a higher um, mechanical loading uh, for a given person. Mm. Got it. Yeah. And uh, one one question that I didn't even put in the questions that I sent to you, but uh, let's see uh, if, if if it's okay anyway to go with this one. Yeah, yeah. I just thought of it. Uh, what about running up uh, hill compared to running on flat ground? How does that impact things biomechanically? Yeah, so that's yeah, a good question. So uh, again, assuming that assuming that the paces are similar, right? So if you're doing, let's say, um, you know, strides or accelerations on a flat ground, and then you do that over o- o- on an uphill, the 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 vertical force that your body is experiencing will be less while you're running uphill. Um, now the the metabolic demands will be higher, right? So it's harder to run uphill, obviously. It's, it your heart rate goes up, your breathing rate goes up, so on and so forth. But 
you're experience you're experiencing lower peak vertical forces and it's loading weight how quickly the force is applied to the body um so on the surface this sounds good because you're thinking well there's less force of course so that's good now i agree with that it's it's good in the sense that like you can find a nice you know uh, a, a, a smallish a small steep or a um a not so steep hill and do some nice work um, with intervals up a hill. And it's a good opportunity to work on, on, on biomechanics and form and technique. Um, you know, I think it's, that's something that people don't use enough is use the opportunity of running uphill as a, as a time to cue technique and, and work on, on form. It is easier to, to, to focus because the, the foot hits the ground a, a bit earlier than if you were to run on, on flat or downhill surfaces. Um, <clears throat> So there's that. The other thing is when you run uphill, though, you really increase the demands on plantar flexors, your calves, essentially, right? So an Achilles tendon. So you've got to be careful with that. And even though the forces are lower, uh, so there's been some nice work on uh, on the contributions of muscle force and, and bone compressive forces I mentioned earlier. So when you run uphill, uh, of course, you're using your calves more. So the tensile, the tension, um, forces that the muscles are, are generating, they are going to contribute to compressing the tibia um, while you run uphill. So even though the forces are less from the ground onto your body, the forces on the tibia might actually be higher. Um, now, that also depends on the person and how they run and whatnot, but that's also something to contribute. My point is, I've heard people say, Let's do some slight uphill running and people recovering from you know, tibial stress fractures, which is probably a good thing. But there's also the possibility that depending on how fast you're running up that hill, it might it might actually increase the amount of force applied to the tibia, which might not be good in terms of rehabbing from a bone stress injury on that bone. Yeah. And what about uh, muscle injuries, like, for example, hamstring strains? Is there a reduced risk of, of death when running up? Let's say you're doing a workout, an interval workout, um, eight times yeah. two minutes at the same yeah. perceived effort uphill yeah. versus on the track. Would would you have a reduced risk of hamstring injuries uh, running uphill? Well, so it depends. So it, that's a tough one because it depends on – so if it's like a high hamstring tendinopathy or if it's like a muscle injury or, or, or distal injury, um, the issue with running uphill is that you go into sort of more hip flexion. And when you go into more hip flexion, you're essentially lengthening the hamstrings at the hip. Um, and so you might be putting a little more strain on the proximal hamstring tendon, so the, ham the tendon that goes from the hamstring attached to the uh, ischial tuberosity on the, on the, on the pelvis. So proximal, closer to your hip joint. So from that perspective, running uphill might be a bit more risky, um, especially uh, in those with uh, proximal tendinopathy uh, history. Um, I don't know though, in terms of because again, if it's done, if it's done, if, you know, effectively, um, in the sense of progressing, you know, amount of exposure to uphill running. I don't know that there's a higher injury risk necessarily because you want to load those tissues to make them stronger and over time and it becomes protective. Um, I will say though, to, again, this is more speculative based on you know running mechanics, but if you're introducing uphill running to, to, to certain people, I would certainly encourage or cue them not to use long steps. A lot of people go uphill and they try to really increase their step length and run faster. I would say, 
keep keep the running um, keep your running steps tight, you know, and, and compact to avoid these large uh, hip flexions early on in a season when you're trying to you know basically progress an athlete to to uh, increase their resiliency potentially with hill repeats. Um, so you just got to be careful with time of season and, and how you cue athletes to uh, to work on those hills. But you can progress. That's the beauty about biomechanics. You can take an, an athlete and have them run a slight uphill and focus on short steps, high cadence. And, you know, you may, may, maybe you cue arm motion or, or posture or something. Not I'm not saying these are that important. I'm just saying, you know, cue something for the athlete to focus on and keep the, the stride tight. And as they get stronger, you can kind of lengthen a bit. And lengthen, and as you lengthen the step, you're increasing likely the the uh, the demands on those, those proximal hamstring uh, tissues, tendon, and muscle. And so that might be a nice way to progress load is altering mechanics on the uphill, as opposed to going to a steeper hill. If that makes sense, right? Yeah. You can you can change the demands of the hill by changing the mechanics of an art, cueing different mechanics a little bit, and and giving instructions about how they run it. Yeah, no, that, that's uh, all great advice. And so it, it sounds to me like reusing hills in, for example, interval work is something similar to trails, something that you can, like doing many different things can be good as uh, in, in terms of the, the the whole holistic picture of, of running, but it's not necessarily, because I, I have heard some people use hills exclusively for intervals rather than the track to reduce injury risk but it doesn't sound very clear-cut from what you're saying in in that sense yeah it's never (laughs) (laughs) clear-cut yeah got it uh and uh well a few other topics uh that i'll be interested to hear your thoughts on is uh first of all aging runners and uh what happens to injury risk and also recovery time biomechanically when uh, as we age yeah, well, you know, recovery time, um, you know, I think I think anyone who's aging, which is everyone, obviously, but anyone who's, you know, gotten to a point in their lives where maybe they're not training as much as they used to and they're getting a bit older, everybody knows that it takes a little more time to recover. That's that's a given. Now, I will say, though, I will say that, you know, and I've heard a lot of these statements over the years, like, oh, you know, once you get beyond 30 or 40 and, you know, you recover slow, uh, more slowly, which is which is partly true. Um at the same time, outside of elite athletes, you know, most of us who age, we tend to do less as we age. So sometimes aging is 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 the is is blamed for being the reason why we recover slower. But at the same time, you know, we're also doing less, and so it's not necessarily aging, but it's maybe you know decrease in in, in training exposure and increased inactivity that's really contributing to these things. And there's some really really good research on this um, from uh, 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 Stephen Harridge and Norman Lazarus uh, <clears throat> on sort of these these concepts of how aging is not necessarily as big a culprit as we think, but it's more it's mostly you know our our, our increased inactivity over over the years that that really is, is is speeding up these these age-related declines that we observe or that or that we perceive right so so anyway so slower recovery potentially especially if you if your training uh, uh exposures go down with age that they're pretty well intermixed in terms of uh injury risk so rich willie uh and i have have written a a, a paper a few years ago on on the aging runner specifically and so we focus on Sort of you know injury risks um, and you know what to do biomechanical differences between those who get injured uh, or between uh, aging and, and and younger runners 
And then, um, you know, we talk about physiological factors, training and whatnot. But I would say that typically aging runners are at a higher risk of, of sort of lower leg injuries. So, you know, basically shin down a bit of knee, but mostly Achilles tendon and calf injuries. Those are pretty common uh, or more common in, in older um, aging runners. And that part of that is because as we age, especially if we stop doing higher intensity work, so maybe we do less jumping or less sprinting uh, or, or any movement that require quite a bit of plantar flexor or calf involvement, um, because those muscles are fairly small, um, as we age, we, we, we seemingly lose a bit more function in those muscles because they are smaller. And so basically the use it, use it or, or lose it concept, you know, obviously you don't lose them, but you definitely lose some of them. Um, and so I think it's really important to maintain uh, the function of our calves and plantar flexors with age. So a lot of, you know, small jumps and hops and a bit faster running, some uphill running, of course. Um, and the biggest, the biggest sort of, uh, warning I want to give people though is as you listen to this podcast, maybe you haven't you haven't run or maybe you haven't done hills in four years or something or you haven't done plyometrics in four years and then you decide, oh, I'll do plyometrics tomorrow and then hills the next day. Well, obviously now it's a new stimulus to you relative to what you've been doing. So anytime you add something to target a specific muscle group, make sure you do it very progressively and, and don't be impatient, you know, really take your time and Patience is obviously the name of the game here. You gotta, you gotta be very, very patient with how you progress loads at any given um, area of the body. Yeah, yeah, no, that's that's a great summary. And what about sex differences between males and females? Are there any that are worth pointing out? Yeah, although there's been a good amount of research on gender differences between men and women, or yeah, obviously, um, in terms of biomechanics. Um, it's very broad. So we, we don't necessarily know a lot, you know, about younger runners or middle-aged runners or young adults or older runners. So there's a bit more research coming out, um, on, on this. Um, but it's still kind of a broad topic at the moment. Um, obviously more research is being done on female athletes, which will really help fill the void and the gaps in that in, in the literature. But, uh, yeah, there are, there definitely are some gender differences in terms of biomechanical factors, Often we might see more motion at the hip joint in, in women, especially sort of frontal and transverse plane. So hip adduction or when the hip kind of comes in uh, towards the other leg and then internal rotation when the femur rotates inwards um, while running. And then a bit of also uh, the position of the knee in the frontal plane. So often we see more knee valgus or knee abduction in, in female runners and potentially a little more uh, drop of the pelvis when we, when we run, so contralateral pelvic drop, but that's not consistent across the board. Of course, again, because we haven't, like there haven't been really that many studies on elite distance runners. Like let's say men and women, elite distance runners, are they that much different? You know, probably not as much as, you know, novice, um, male and female runners. It also depends on what's their history. So for example, if you have if you compare women who used to play soccer or volleyball or, you know, another, you know, fairly high intensity sport versus, versus men who are sedentary and you have them run, you know, I would, I would expect that the differences might be in favor in quotation marks uh, uh, towards the, the, the female athletes because they're just generally more athletic. So as you can see, it gets confusing because we don't quite know, you know, that things haven't been controlled very well, you know, when we compare these gender differences. And so, um, 
it, it's really hard to tell. But there are, as I said, as I said, a couple of a couple of variables that, that seem to be different between men and women, and those might contribute to injury risks, um, especially patellofemoral pain uh, syndrome, um, which you know often motions at the hip tend to uh, or seem to be risk factors for those anterior knee pain or patellofemoral pain syndrome. Uh, which are more prevalent in female runners. Mm. And is there anything, are there any uh, implications of those findings that we do have in terms of advice for what yeah. can be done to prevent uh, patellofemoral pain, pain, for example? Well, as you know, I think, yeah, I, I, I think the, the cueing, so you know, cueing on form is one thing that people uh, have, have tried. Um, not the outcomes haven't been too great in terms of uh, the science that has co- have come of it. Um, of course, strength training, but if you see it, m- most physios you see, they'll try to strengthen your glutes, right? Uh, it's, it's the idea that's that, that's like the, uh, that's like the, uh, the, the cure for all injuries. It seems, uh, there was a funny, there was a funny tweet, uh, a little while, I mean, probably a couple of years ago, but, um, Alice Wright, who's a, uh, elite, um, English, uh, marathon or distance runner. Um, she mentioned, uh, it was kind of a, a tongue in cheek thing where, she said, you know, calf injuries, glute strength or something like that. Uh, you know, knee injuries, glute strengthening. And then she goes, migraines, glute strengthening. You know, so it was kind of like this, this all encompassing. If you have any problems with your body, just do glute strengthening and it should fix it as a, as a bit of a joke to the fact that, you know, everyone says strengthen your glutes, but there's actually not really any evidence that making your glutes stronger will alter your biomechanics. And and so someone, you know, the, the summary on the research is basically if you make, if you train your glutes to be stronger, you will become better at, you know, doing glute exercises, right? Mm-hmm. But it doesn't translate to changing your mechanics. Yeah. But does, does it have to be a change in mechanics that, that is, that, that helps injury prevention or could it just be that strengthening, I don't know. Uh, alters the response to the loading on the muscle and the, the tendons and the bones. Right. So the theory here is that like maybe by strengthening glutes, you don't change the mechanics, but potentially the tissue is more in quotations resilient. Right. And so it, it can handle more load. Um, we don't know, you know, we, we really don't know. Um, you know, I, I used to be really sort of I, I, a, a strong belief in that concept and, you know, I've had some good conversations with, with colleagues, whether it was in person or email or, you know, on Twitter. And, and uh, you know, I, I think it's, it's simple to see that it's not clear cut, that we don't really know. Uh, and mm-hmm. so kind of I want to keep an open mind there. It might, it might also be other factors that, that, that um, you know, improving strength um, and, and, and reducing injury risks might be as simple as, you know, maybe you're a bit more athletic, maybe – you become more athletic by doing these things. Maybe you're changing your positions, not necessarily joint positions, but how you step and things. And um, so it's really, it's blurry a little bit. Um, the, the, the mechanisms aren't clear. If, if increasing strength of the, of, the, of the gluteal muscles reduces injury risk, which it doesn't seem to, to, to do that, um, the mechanism for that is, is not clear. Yeah, yeah. And uh, well, you mentioned earlier the rotating of shoes uh, as a good thing to do. Just uh, a question on when to replace shoes and, and yeah. how long to run in them. Is there any research on this, or if not, or do you have any <laughs> anecdotal evidence or, or yeah. practical advice? Um, I mean, there's been some work on like uh, trying to quantify 
changes in the biomechanics of running uh, in shoes that are new or, you know, after X amount of miles or whatever. And I think, you know, people say after some 300 miles or 400 miles, you change your shoes. But, but this goes back to the whole topic of that we started with, which is quantifying training load, right? If you only use mileage as your assessment of how good your shoes are now or how damaged your shoes are, it, it doesn't account for how many steps do you take per mile, right? Because if you're super tall and very light, you're taking longer steps, so less steps per mile, arguably. Let's assume everyone everyone is the same pace, right? So longer steps, fewer steps per mile. Uh, if you're lighter, then less mechanical load is being placed on the materials of the shoe. Because obviously, a shoe is not biological; it's 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 a material that that is synthetic, and so you're not. It doesn't it doesn't regenerate, right? There's no there's no blood supply. There's no it just you know it just kind of dies and dies and dies over time. But so you know, if you're lighter, you take longer steps. Potentially, you know, per mile, you're you're. Because you're taking you're taking fewer steps per mile, you end up applying less stress on or let you know less force on the shoe, and so those shoes might last a lot longer. Um, some shoes have material that doesn't last that long, and uh, you know, and so I, I hate the idea of 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 number of miles. Like I have shoes back here uh, on, on our back porch that I've had for probably ten years. And, (laughs) and, and, and sometimes I, I mean, I have, I have a gazillion pairs of shoes and I have brand new ones and older ones and, you know, I'll wear and I'll run in older shoes at times. Um, I think, you know, I'm not saying I've run every day in those over 10 years, of course, I might've run like 12 times a year in those shoes because I've got so many pairs, but, you know, I think for me personally, it was, it was always a question of feel like I could feel when it was time to retire a pair of shoes. You know, and it wasn't, I never quantified how much mileage I put on shoes or how many steps I took on shoes or how many minutes I ran on those shoes. It was always like, okay, I know these, are, these have maybe one or two runs left in them and I'm going to throw them out, you know? Yeah. And it's hard to describe, but you know, it goes back to feel and education and experience with running is the more you know about yourself and how certain things feel, the better you are at making decisions overall. But that's, that's an example of that. Yeah. No, I, I do agree with you. I, I'm I'm the same in that I, by conventional wisdom, I'm probably using my shoes for too many miles, quote unquote. But but I do feel when they start to degrade, yeah. And then I I guess my mistake is sometimes I still take another hundred kilometers <laughs> before actually replacing them. But that's a different story. Yeah, but and, but, and, uh, but and the evidence but, on use there, the evidence on use of shoes and injuries isn't great either. So hmm. there's no real evidence saying like when shoes are this old, you're more likely to get injured. Yeah, yeah. Now you might you might feel better in them, but it doesn't mean you're not you're you're, you're going to get injured uh, or not yeah. get injured. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, okay, that, so so that's that's the shoes topic, and then just a couple of other questions before we get into the rapid fire ones. Yeah, sure. The first one is: uh, What are some common mistakes you want to point out for runners to avoid? And this can be anything, not just biomechanics or the topics we discussed, but anything related to running. Oh yeah, there's a lot of things I think here. <laughs> Common mistakes. We've alluded to the the whole you know easy run thing. I I, I really believe that. I really believe that. Um, um, I'm I'm I tend to be again I, again. This is going to be more of a focus on uh, on younger runners, youth runners. I I like for them to do a little less volume, so they might not run. They might only run like 25 to 35 minutes on easy on easy runs. Um, but I really like that to, to like them to keep it <clears throat> very. Um, relatively slow, you know, and, and so, 
Um, the reason why I use minutes there is because, again, I have a, a, a wide range of athletes. So if I tell them to go run four miles, some of them are running 7.30 per mile. Others are running nine minute per mile. And so, you know, a nine minute per mile for, for, for four miles, of course, is going to take, you know, 36 minutes versus a seven minute per mile is 28 minutes. So that, I mean, you know, you're, you're looking at a, you know, an eight minute difference, you know, on one day of the week. So I, I like to just minutes, keep it easy on easy days. Um, <clears throat> the other thing is runners try to do too much at once. You know, you, you finish a season and then you take some time off maybe, and then you listen to a podcast or, or you hear, uh, you read a, an Instagram, you know, post by some pro athlete and, they're doing these strength exercises and the podcast says you should do some plyometrics and hill running and all this stuff. And then they come back and they try to incorporate everything at once. Strength training, plyometrics, hill running, you know, running, uh, and it's just too much, right? So I would say the bit, one of those mistakes is, you know, incorporate things, you know, compartmentalize it. You know, start with strength training maybe and then add some hill running and then add some plyometrics later on and so on and so forth. So uh, really being careful with that. And then the last thing I would say is, um, you know, is, is, is often, and this is more for coaches, is assuming that <clears throat> athletes are responding the way you think they're responding to your training. That's probably the, one of the biggest mistakes I see in coaches is, you know, they, um, they don't really communicate or observe as well as they should. And they, they sort of miss, <clears throat> miss on some opportunities to maybe back off of training or increase training or, or whatnot. So those are probably the main three things I would say. Yeah, no, all all great points are really good. And uh, what is one thing that you're currently learning about, or studying, or are fascinated by, and why? Oh, everything, everything, Michael, everything to do with running. I'm fascinated by. Uh, yeah, we we've got some, you know, a wide array of studies. Some studies about you know at you know trying to learn about coaches coaches' beliefs and strategies in injury risk reduction. Like, what do coaches think are important factors, and how do we reduce injury risks? And It'll be interesting to compare that with what we know in the literature. Um, did some, d- doing some work on uh, one of my students right now is finishing up a, a thesis project on strength training and middle-aged runners. So we're trying to look at different types of strength training over a 10-week period to see how it changes uh, you know, economy and then plantar flexor function and Achilles tendon stiffness uh, over the course of 10 weeks in middle-aged runners. Um, a lot of footwear work. Um, footwear in, in, in less and more experienced runners. Um, and by experience, I mean lifetime exposure to running. And then, um, so seeing if, if those, when you, when you present a novel footwear condition to a, to a, a, a low or high experience runner, do they respond differently to that? And so the, the hypothesis is that if you're less experienced, you're likely to, to, uh, to be your mechanics would like to be more malleable. You might, you might respond more to a, a footwear condition. Whereas if you're experienced, you know, you're so, you're so used to running a certain way that the footwear might not influence your mechanics as much if you're highly experienced. Um, learning a lot about, uh, at the moment, um, learning a lot more uh, about sort of the psychology of injury and, and behavior changes. Um, I think that's a, a part of my career that I haven't really, uh, focused on and, and known much about, um, you know, of course, from experience, you learn things, but really from a, from a scientific standpoint, so to focus on that a bit more and, uh, yeah, some, some interesting studies coming up in the next few, uh, months and years, um, that are in the works. And so some large studies and smaller ones and, and whatnot. 
Great, yeah. yeah. And uh, we'll link to, to your profiles on Twitter and so on in the show notes so people can follow you and, and see what, uh, what, you got, uh, what you get published in the next, uh, next little while. Good. Now, uh, let's move on to the rapid-fire questions. So take just one sentence to answer each of these. And the first one is, what's your favorite book or resource related to running or science? Oh, uh, I gotta be, I gotta be nerdy here. I gotta go with Alex Hutchinson's Endure. Uh, I think that's just that brilliant book. Yeah, that that's the the most voted answer to this question uh, yeah, in three hundred plus episodes. It's amazing. I mean, it's just, just, it's just so good. Yeah. Yeah. What's an important habit that you've benefited from, athletically, professionally, or personally? Whoa, that's a tough question. Uh, patience. That's a good answer. Patience. And, and, and who's somebody that you look up to or that has inspired you? Oh, my gosh. Yeah. So many people. But, um, yeah, probably most of my coaches, um, my high school coach, Francois Bellil uh, from, from Canada. He's on Twitter as well. And, uh, and then I would say pro- so that would be sort of personally professional, but also Trent Stellingworth, uh, who you know, um, yep. really close friend and uh, mentor of mine. Awesome. And uh, finally, uh, just for listeners that want to check you out directly, what is your Twitter handle, any other social media website, any, anywhere that we can find you? Yeah, my uh, yeah. so I mean, Twitter is probably the, 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 the platform that I'm most active on. I just think it's very useful to interact with people and, you know, uh, good and bad at times. But um, my Twitter handle is very unoriginal. Uh, it's simply biomechmax. So B I O M E C H and then Max. So that's that's me on Twitter. Uh, yeah, like to share some stuff on there. So perfect. Yeah. Okay, thank thank you so much, Max. It's been really great to have you on and uh, learn a lot of stuff uh, about biomechanics, training load, and so on. I really appreciate it, and uh, looking forward to talking to you another time. Of course, Michael. Thank you. I hope that you enjoyed that interview. As always, you can find the show notes on scientifictriathlon.com with links to Max's Twitter and ResearchGate and other profiles. One episode that I think that you might be interested in interested in if you enjoyed this one is uh, the one that I did with Izzy Moore back in episode 241 so I'll link to that as well in the show notes Uh, we might have even talked about that or her research in the interview with Max but I can't remember at the moment of recording this outro Uh, I also mentioned Max's interview on the physical performance show which I will link to as well and uh, some of the papers that are relevant for the discussion that we had so plenty of links there that you can check out And uh, while you're on the website, if you're interested in taking your triathlon to the next level, check out the information about our coaching services and our training plans. Uh, Those are two great, great ways to help you take you one step closer to achieving your triathlon goals. And uh, we have plenty of other people that have gone through the same process. And you can actually find a lot of reviews on the website from people like you that have uh, been coached by us or are coached by us or have used a training plan. So you can find out what others in your situation have thought about it. So check that out as well. And of course, don't hesitate to reach out directly if you want more information. Next Monday on the podcast, we have Dr. Dustin Joubert, who will talk us through his so-called super shoe study, where he compared almost all of the carbon-plated shoes out on the market at that moment in time to see which ones perform the best. 
And I won't spill the beans on that uh, if you don't know already. But uh, yeah, tune in on Monday and you will find out and you'll find out all the details about it as well. It's a really interesting one and uh, definitely do not go and buy any pair of super shoes uh, between now and that interview. It's worth waiting a bit and uh, listening to what Dustin has to say. And uh, that will help you make an, an informed decision on where you spend your money when it comes to super shoes. Finally, big thanks to our sponsors, Precision Fuel and Hydration, that you can find on precisionfuelandhydration.com. Use their free online sweat test and quick carb calculator to understand your fluid, electrolyte, and carbohydrate needs and individualize your plan. Also book a free video consultation with the team to refine that strategy. Use the code TTS22 at checkout for 15% off your first order of fueling and hydration products. And thank you to Zen8. Use the Zen8 swim trainer to improve your technique, power, stamina, and most importantly, your swim training consistency. Get 20% off your order on the swim trainer with a promo code that you can get on zen8swimtrainer.com forward slash TTS. And don't forget that it's a risk-free investment. If you don't love it after two weeks, send it back and you'll get a full refund. Thank you, as always, for listening. Keep training smart and keep loving triathlon.